Yes, I've got it at the back, at the side there, yes. Well, thank you very much for your welcome. It's very pleasant to be here once again. I can hardly believe that it's a year since I was last here. And uh, being gluttons for punishment, you've asked me for four Sundays. And so I'm happy to do that. Now, I remember last time, uh, over four Sundays, I, I did a series of talks on Advent themes and some of the people around the cradle based on a book that I was enjoying reading with that title. Um, this time, I would like to do something just a little different. I'd like to give a couple of talks that are only loosely connected with Advent time. This is, of course, Advent Sunday, uh, traditionally in the church, and the first Sunday in Advent. Um, but I'd like to do a couple of talks uh, based around some events in the life of King David, and the connection between David and our Lord, who is David's, great, David's greater son, um, is obvious. But I want, to, I want to do two things in connection with the life of David, and then on the third Sunday and the fourth Sunday, we'll look at some Advent topics. Next week's subject, um, I'm going to look at uh, something about civic power, civil power, national power in the life of David, and of course that's the Sunday before the election, and it might just be useful for us to reflect a little bit upon uh, what, is, what is for our country a pretty challenging time, and uh, the outcome of this election uh, could be far-reaching for our country in one way or the other, and as Christians uh, we are encouraged to play our part in the life of our country but more importantly, to pray for our leaders and our rulers and the future of our land. So that's broadly what I'm going to do. Two talks on David, uh, one uh, and, and two talks around Advent issues. So in a moment or two, I'm going to invite you to follow a reading from 2 Samuel 7, which is where I'd like to go this evening. Just before that, I wanted to say something about um, a little book that I've had published John Riches um, have very kindly uh, offered to publish this book. Um, now, I've been, I've been writing this for about three years. I don't mean non-stop, um, but over the last three years I've been working on this. And it started out as an exercise for me in writing down, or writing out some of the things that were important to me over the years, things that I've invested time in and subjects I've talked about uh, and things that matter to me. Um, now, some people say, there's a saying which is that speaking makes a ready man, I suppose I should say a ready person, but writing makes an exact person. And the act of writing something down is more demanding than speaking. And so I, I set myself the task of writing down things that were important to me. And I suppose I intended them in a, to put them in a folder and leave them for my family when I'm gone so that they might have time to think about what mattered to me, because they always seem in too big a hurry to listen to anything I've got to say. So I've written about family matters. I've written about the Plymouth Brethren. Somebody said that my account in this book of the Brethren was the most positive they had ever read. <laughs> uh, and they said that with some surprise. So I've written something about my experience of the Brethren. I've written a chapter about intelligent design. I've written a chapter about education, evolution, and indoctrination. I've written about Christians in the marketplace, and I've written a chapter called Still a Christian. This is an interesting chapter because it's based on a message I was asked to give about 15 years ago at West Glasgow Church. They were doing a series on why I am a Christian, and they asked me to be one of their speakers. And um, so I enjoyed doing that at the time, and I've actually given this message about 30 times. Now, I don't usually do that. My experience is that a message is, better, is at its best the third time. 
because by the third time you've got all the wrinkles sorted out and the time balance right. Uh, and after the third time, it's pretty much downhill from there. However, this, this message is one that I have had, uh, has been very well received, and it, it's an attempt to say why I am still a Christian. In fact, it's the only message I've ever given on a Sunday morning when I was finished, I got uh, unsolicited and unsustained applause. Now, I'm not asking for anything tonight, but uh, this, this particular message, and I, what I learned from that was that it is essentially about apologetics. What I learned from that was that Christians were mightily encouraged by a sense that what they had believed was true and that there were sound reasons for believing the Christian faith. So that was interesting, an interesting experience. And uh, just as a tailpiece to that, I got a phone call from West Glasgow Church just a few weeks ago saying we'd like to come for a few Sundays and we would like you to repeat that message on why you are still a Christian. So it sounds like they quite enjoyed it too. Um, I think that's the only time I've ever been asked to come and repeat a message. So there it is. It's in the book. Anyway, that's the book. And um, I've brought some copies with me, and they're in the foyer. And if you would like to take one, please do so. I'll bring a few each week. Um, I'll try not to anticipate a level of sales, but uh, if, if you don't get one this week, I'll, I'll bring some more uh, next week. Now, it sells for £8.99, but uh, I sell it for £5, which is what it costs me, and I'd be delighted if you, if you can leave £5. However, if you're a student or a pensioner or you've just got no money, then just help yourself, and if you haven't got any money with you, don't, just, just if you want one, please take it. And not to put too fine a point on it, it might not make a bad Christmas present. <laughs> so there are some copies of that there. Thanks for your patience in that. So let's go to Second Samuel chapter 7. The reason for getting it into a book was that I showed it to John Riches, and they said, yeah, we'd be happy to publish that, which was very decent of them. A wee bit of a surprise to me, but there you are, life's full of surprises. 2 Samuel 7. Now, this in the NIV and the NIV is entitled, God's Promise to David. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a place of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. And that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and following the flock, took the ruler over my you wherever you have gone, your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed." Wicked people shall not oppress them any more, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. 
when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men and floggings inflicted by men, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Uh, we'll pause there, and uh, I invite you to read the rest of the chapter in your own time, because David takes this disappointment rather well and prays to the Lord. And in verse 25, he says, And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. So may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Now, I've called my book Born in a Golden Age. And one of the things that I have reflected on uh, for a number of years is how privileged, how enormously privileged I have been to live in this age. Um, I think it's hard to imagine that any age of human history past could have been as good as the age we have lived in. I was born in 1945. I was actually born on the day that President Roosevelt died. I was born in the morning he died in the afternoon. So far as I am aware, the two events were completely unconnected. Just a few weeks ago, I noticed on Netflix a series of programs about the Roosevelts, five two-hour programs, actually, made by public service broadcasting in America. And I was intrigued and watched them and found them fascinating. I think because I have all had this kind of sense that I had a connection with the Roosevelts, however tenuous, and uh, those programs dealt with Teddy Roosevelt, who was a president of the United States around the beginning of the 20th century, and then Franklin Roosevelt, who became president in the 1930s, and remarkably is the only American to have been elected president four times in the history of America. Uh, American presidents usually only serve two terms, uh, which was established by George Washington. But because of the Second World War, and the centrality of Roosevelt's part in it, he was given a third term and a fourth term, although he died in the first year, I think, of his fourth term as president. So I was very struck by this, and I hadn't appreciated the extent to which, both in America and in the wider world, Franklin D. Roosevelt had been a key figure. It wouldn't be an, ex an exaggeration to say, without Churchill, this country would have gone under, Without Roosevelt and the American uh, war effort, there probably wouldn't have been the age that we have lived in. And it seems remarkable that in 1945, when this country was essentially bankrupt, the year I was born, the end of the war, the country was bankrupt. Um, but by 1950 and 1955, this country had pulled itself together again. And during the 1950s and 60s, we had the most extraordinary era of, pre of peace and prosperity, which is almost unbelievable. And I grew up in that age, and I suppose it's really only in the second half of my life that I've come to appreciate what 
a golden age it is that uh, I have lived through. You wouldn't think we have lived through a golden age. Uh, the level of discontent in our country is palpable. Um, we are completely dissatisfied people in just about every respect. And the fact of the matter is that for most people, or many people, life couldn't be better. I know that for some people it's hard. I, I know about food banks and all of that, and I'm not, I'm not downplaying that. But comparatively speaking, we live in a golden age. Now, there have been other ages in history that have been unusual because of the peace and prosperity that was engendered. One of these ages was the age in which our Lord was born, the age of Caesar Augustus. From about 20 BC up until uh, uh, around about 20 AD, there was an enormously prosperous period in the history of the world built around the Roman Empire. And it's interesting, I think I spoke about this when I was with you last year, it is interesting that it was that point in history that the Lord chose to send His Son into the world. Galatians 4, 4 says, when the set time had come, when the appointed time had come, God sent forth His Son. And that was a golden age because Augustus, who became Caesar around about, I think, AD, BC 20 or 30, um, having defeated the other contenders uh, for the emperor's post, um, he initiated a period of peace throughout the Roman world. He established the Roman Empire securely, and he began what Boris Johnson would call, call infrastructure investment, building roads and establishing sea lanes across the world and ushering in an era of trade and prosperity and peace and the rule of law which up until that time was largely unknown. So that was a golden age in another sense. And the passage we've read tonight represents the beginning of a golden age in Israel's history. This is the point at which David, as king, becomes established and settled in the city of Jerusalem. Now, this was no mean feat, and there's a long history behind this. There's the history of the deliverance from Egypt, there are the years of wandering in the wilderness. There's the way in which under Joshua they fought their way into the land and took the land that was promised for them. And then with Samuel and the prophets and Saul, these turbulent, unsettled years when people had to decide whom they wished to worship, whom they wished to serve, and who was to be their king, the Lord's rejection of Saul, and the unlikely raising up of David, the unlikely member of the family, the shepherd who becomes the king of Israel, and who, if I guess, if you ask the Jewish people who was the greatest king in their history, I think almost certainly they would say King David. And this passage that we've read together this evening is the passage where the kingdom is established. David, in the previous few chapters, has taken the kingdom, the capital city of the Jebusites, which was to become Jerusalem, the city of God, he has established his palace and his throne in Jerusalem, and there is a period of peace. Now, it's understandable. David was born in about 1040 BC. He reigned until about 970 BC. That's a period of just over 40 years. And the passage that we've read together tonight would be dated at around about 1000 BC, the start of the day of the of the kingdom of David in the land of Israel. So, he unites the people with a form of monarchy, 
and leadership that is um, not really similar to our constitutional monarchy, but which was designed to give the people direction and stability. So, this passage shows that we have a new king, a new capital city, and a new dynasty. And in chapters 8 to 10, which follow this, David expands the borders of Israel, defeating his enemies and organizing the kingdom. Now, it's understandable that at this point uh, in his experience, David would want to pay tribute to the guidance of God in his life. And so, he wants to build a house for the Lord. He said, here I am, verse 2, living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God lives in a tent. And this is entirely understandable. There's a personal desire to thank the Lord and a political desire to give a focus for the faith um, and belief of the people and the settling of the people in the land. So, entirely understandable that David wanted to do this. But as we see in the passage, this was not God's intention at this time. Now, as I've said, it wasn't surprising that David would want to do this. And so, the first point I want just to emphasize is what I would call the spiritual longing that David had. Can I get, can I get the first point on the slide? I'm having difficulty. There we are. A longing, um, a profound spiritual longing. Not surprising, a man after God's own heart, God at the center of his life, a man who was musical and creative, like some of our friends with their encouraging move, uh, music this evening, the writer of Psalms, who tried not only to lead the people in the worship of God, but to put words in their mouths that they could use to worship God. Um, and despite the anger and opposition of Saul, he is safely in the throne, and so his longing is to build a house for the Lord. And so, he tells Nathan, Nathan would be um, what they would call in Westminster a special advisor. The Bible calls them prophets. And so, Nathan is David's spiritual advisor, and he says to Nathan, Nathan, it's time to build a house for the Lord, to build a temple here in Jerusalem. And Nathan, perhaps a little unaccustomedly for a prophet, says, David, that's a brilliant idea, verse 3. Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, because the Lord is with you, and you're not the kind of guy who would get this wrong, and there's nobody better than you to build the temple, so do what's in your heart. Except that that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Nathan, you got that one wrong. But let's just pause for a moment and, and just, just think about this, this whole matter of spiritual longing. Now, if you're like me, there will be things in your life that you've longed to do. Um, and some of them you've been able to do and get a sense of satisfaction. But maybe more often, the things that we long to do are not things that somehow or other we are able to do. And with that, there comes a degree of frustration um, and a degree, a degree of disappointment. So, there is nothing wrong with having longings. In fact, every one of us has in our heart a longing for what I'm going to call significance. I mean, after all, the gift of life is a wonderful thing. It's a remarkable thing. The more I think about it, the more lost I am in it. I talk about, as you know, I do a lot of talks about science and design and how everything about life screams design. Um, but, you know, the most mysterious and most wonderful thing about our lives is our minds and our consciousness. 
The fact that in our minds we can think deep thoughts. The fact that in our minds we can think about things beyond ourselves. I can sit in my study um, and be reading a book and have my attention lifted to the universe around me. I have a study that looks out over the fields and uh, towards the sky, and 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 an evening I can watch the setting sun and be enthralled by the beauty of the universe I live in. And while I'm doing that, I hear my wife shouting, when are you coming down to fix this kettle? And somehow or other my mind is able to disconnect from the universe to this kettle that's not working. You know, the capacity of our mind to focus on the distant and the immediate, to be rational, even sometimes to be irrational, to feel emotion, to feel joy, to feel sadness. Uh, We are incredible beings. And I think that with that, it would be surprising if it didn't happen. With that, there comes this longing for significance, which is really a longing to know what is my life about and what am I meant to do? Now, David, when he was keeping sheep, uh, would have, was pretty satisfied, I think, that he had a job, and a job that was worthwhile in his family. He couldn't have imagined that God was calling him eventually to be king of the nation. Um, but he would understand uh, this longing in his heart to do God's will, and he was well on the way to doing what God wanted in his life. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian apologist of the 20th century, developed what might be called an argument from desire. I've always been interested in an argument from design, but Lewis was interested in what he called an argument from desire, suggesting that every natural desire has a corresponding object and is only satisfied when this is attained or experienced. And he goes on to say that when the natural desire for transcendent fulfillment is not met through anything in our current experience, it leads to the suggestion that it could be satisfied beyond the present world. And he summarizes this intriguing reality like this. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And there was that kind of, that was one of the things that brought C.S. Lewis to faith. He found within his atheistic spirit, as it was when he was a young man, a desire for something beyond himself. And he realized that this was a desire, a longing for the transcendent. You'll you'll have experienced that in your own life in various ways. And and to some extent, that's what brings us to faith, this desire for something beyond ourselves. But we also have a desire for security. We we have a a desire to, to be secure in our lives, not just physically and materially secure, but spiritually secure. And of course, that's why the gospel brings such peace and joy, because it brings to us security in faith in Christ, that our sins are forgiven, that our future is secure, that the Lord cares for us and is with us. And that longing to be secure in the love of God. And then there is a longing to serve God. It would be very strange if Christians, individual Christians, didn't have individual desires to be useful to God and to serve Him. And in the course of my life, I have thought about the things that I'm called to do and the things I'm not called to do. And it's a wonderful thing to arrive at a place where you feel you have a sense of what it is God wants you to do, and you're able to do that. So, longing is a very important part of our lives, and not to let it unsettle us, but also to listen to it, because in our longings, 
we can hear the voice of God. We can hear the voice of the Holy Spirit directing us to what it is God has for us in our lives. I'll say a bit more about that later. However, David's longing in this case, admirable though it was, did not coincide with God's uh, plan for him. And so, the second point I want to make is that this passage shows something about a lesson. So, can we get that second point? I can't somehow use this for some reason. That's it, a lesson. So, he has to learn a lesson. Now, it's quite hard for kings uh, to learn lessons from lesser people. But Nathan comes back to David and has to say to him, David, this is not for you to do. And it's interesting to read the, the passage that we read together, to go over it again, where the Lord says to David, David, I've been with you. I've guided you. I've strengthened you. I've looked after you, but this is not for you. And that's a hard message. It's quite hard in life to run up against something that is not intended for you. Now, there's no question that David could have done this. There's no question he had the resources. There's no question that he had the initiative. Uh, there's no question that he had the desire, but it wasn't God's will for him. It was God's will that Solomon would build the temple, not David. And so, even although David is a king, he is not allowed to do this thing. Although later in 1 Kings 8, 18, he is given credit for it. Uh, the Lord says to David, it was in your heart to do it, and you did well. But this is not the thing for you. And I have a short list of things that I've wanted to do in my life, things that I've wanted to be, um, and I've not been able to do it because it wasn't for me. Now, I might have felt I could have done them, but uh, it wasn't for me. Sometimes a job interview helps you with that. I've had a few job interviews in my life. Uh, I've won enough of them to be still standing, but I didn't get all the jobs I applied for. Uh, and sometimes, uh, well, actually, to be honest, in education, I found it much easier to deal with the jobs I didn't get than the ones I did get, because uh, uh, when you get a job at an interview, you think, oh, do I really want this? Is this really what I want? Um, but uh, I think I came to learn that job interviews was one of the, way, one of the ways in which the Lord guided you. Um, what was nice about not getting a job was you didn't have to worry about it anymore. I mean, you didn't agonize anymore if it wasn't applied for it or whether it was right. Uh, if you just didn't get it, you didn't get it, and that was it. And actually, that's quite a helpful attitude. If you try to do something and the door is closed, then thank God for His providence that you're not led to do something you're not meant to do. And that's the lesson David had to learn. And, and it is a, a salutary lesson for each of us to learn that. We can't do everything. Now, I suppose there is a part of life where uh, people want to do the kind of attractive things, the public things, the important things, and sometimes you have to swallow and realize that that's not for you. And the Lord will convey that to you in a variety of ways. Um, sometimes somebody will tell you that it's not for you, and sometimes that's a bit hard to listen to, um, but a wise person will listen and reflect. But the important thing is to realize that the Lord has something for each of us to do. And the critical thing is to do the thing that God has called you to and gifted you to. In Christian service, it's really important that we reflect on this. First Peter 4 verse 10 says, each one should use whatever gift he has to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. In 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7, we read, to each one 
the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And the Lord has given to each individual Christian a unique set of gifts that He intends them to use in the service of His church. I read an interesting book years ago which had five ways in which Christians could identify their gifts. Uh, the five points were explore, experiment, examine, evaluate, expect. And the writer was um, very helpful, helpful to me. Explore the possibilities. You could look, for example, at the various lists of gifts that are given in the New Testament, and you could see whether there are any of those um, uh, that fit. I mean, I know I'm not uh, musical, so I, I never worried that I wasn't in the praise band or the worship group, because I just didn't have those gifts. But just looking at the gifts, that's not one in the New Testament, incidentally, although they did sing a lot in the Old Testament. Um, but just by looking at, the, at the, the gifts that are there, you can see that there may be some that stand out for you. Experimenting means, um, sounds a wee bit dodgy, but what it means is get involved in things. One of the ways you can find out your abilities and strengths is to get involved in it and see if you're any good at it. If you think you're call to pastoral or supporting ministries, then get involved a bit uh, with people who are doing it and see if you, if you can contribute to that. Examine your feelings, because although I don't think Paul had this difficulty. And when he came to Ephesus, I'm sure he didn't say, brother, where do we plug in? Um, anyway, um, lost my train of thought. But uh, yeah, expect uh, confirmation from, from others. Um, and, and that's one of the ways in which we learn to, which, to what we are called. And so these kind of lessons are important. And David had a lesson to learn. Even although he was the king of Israel, he couldn't do everything and shouldn't do some things because that wasn't God's will. Now, in my book, I've written a little bit about what I've called the Plymouth Brethren or the Christian Brethren. The older I grow, the more I appreciate my tradition. I'm not blind to its weaknesses. I'm not blind to its follies, and some of them were serious. But I do appreciate what it was 
that the early brethren, sorry sisters, because sister doesn't sound quite so so good, uh, what the brethren set out to do, what they set out to do was a very radical thing in church history, which was to take the life of the church back to where the early church started. And in the 1830s, that was a remarkable thing to do because, of course, the established church, Church of Ireland as it was, the Church of England, um, was very close to government. And yet, under God, they were initiators of a movement of which we are the inheritors today. And I came across a book recently by Michael Green, uh, the uh, late Michael Green. He passed away not long ago, but he was an Anglican uh, vicar um, and a very effective evangelist around the world. I heard him speak once in Stirling and was very moved by what he had to say. And in a little book called 30 Years That Changed the World, he talks about the early church. And I just want to take a moment to read this to you because this, this is remarkable. He says, the first thing to note is that they were utterly unqualified lay people. This is the shockwave that reverberates from a verse like Acts 4.13. They were unschooled, ordinary men. That was amazing. People had, of course, said the same of Jesus. But if you were going to choose a revolutionary task force of 12 men, who would you go for? Surely not unqualified laymen. They had no education apart from the basics that they gained from the synagogue school. They had no standing in the community. They had no authorization from anyone. There was not a rabbi among them. Is this not one of the supreme glories of the Christian church? There was no hard and fast distinction between clergy and laity in early Christianity. And he goes on to say you can go right down to the end of the second century And you find Christian writers boasting, we have no altars, no temple, no priesthood. Their altar was a cross. Their temple was the body of believers. Their priesthood included the whole Christian membership. To be sure, there were those with particular gifts and functions within the body of the church, and these included the gifts of leadership, of administration, of prophecy, and so on. But it was a one-class society. And this paragraph struck me. In many parts of Christendom, that pattern has been reversed during the last 1,500 years. Christian witness has become very sharply divided between clergy and laity, between those who minister and those who do not. That's a great pity. It takes away one of the special differentia of the early church. It obscures the fact that all, not some, are called to serve and it allows churches to regard themselves as forlorn if they have no paid full-time leader. That is why it is so salutary to remember that in the early churches there was no paid full-time leadership, and they seem to manage not too badly on that account. It is my conviction that God has all the necessary gifts of leadership within each congregation. If only these people could be recognized and encouraged to contribute their abilities in their own way for the good of the whole. And then he adds this sentence, this could be a message of profound joy and hope to small struggling churches that feel they can't go on because they can't afford the minister. Now, when I read that, I thought, I wonder if he knows anything about the brethren. Certainly too late to tell him. But um, he might even have had some contact with them. I don't know. But when I read that, my heart missed a beat. I thought, what he is describing is the very thing in our tradition that we have tried to practice. And so not in any denominational or separatist sense. What our tradition has given us is a sense that within each church fellowship, 
there should be the range of gifts to sustain the life of the church. And that means that each one of us should be seriously concerned about uh, trying to understand what it is that the Lord has for us to do and to give ourselves to the doing of that. Now, I'm sure that uh, many of you here uh, are doing just that. I'm constantly impressed by the liveliness of your fellowship, of the music, of the enthusiasm of the congregation, and I think you've got a sense of that. So, David had a longing to do something. God didn't want him to do that, and he had to learn the lesson that there were things for him to do, and there were things for other people. My third point is that this is a chapter about legacy, um, and the Lord speaks here about David's legacy. It's um, as if God is saying to him, David, you've set your heart on building a temple, but I want you to know that your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Verse 16, your throne shall be established forever. And so, God's promises to David are, first of all, about his own family and about his successors, then about the nation. This nation will have a home of their own. They will be one nation, um, and they will be together. And about the world, because there's a promise that David's legacy will involve the world. The throne of David actually ended in 586 BC with Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. But the line of David continued, even through the years of the exile and the return to the land. Although there wasn't formally the kings that there were from David onwards, the, the, the thread of Jewish faith continued. The nation held itself together. And of course, the line of David brought Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the Son of God, into the world. Luke 1 verse 32 reminds us, God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Verse 16 of this chapter says, a throne forever. Jesus comes from David's line, also Mary, also Joseph, and he's known as great David's greater son. The New Testament also makes promises about the future of Israel and about the heavenly Jerusalem of which you and I are part. And so, although David couldn't build a temple in Jerusalem as Solomon did, um, he has given a legacy that is second to none. From his family line shall come the Messiah, and ultimately from his line will come Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, and the Jerusalem that will be forever. It's interesting for us to think about our legacy at a humble level. The truth of the matter is we all leave something behind us. And if we're faithful to God in our lives and in our service, then we will have a legacy too. Our words will endure, our families will endure, our testimony will endure, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll contribute to the ongoing work of the kingdom in ways that we probably couldn't have seen. In Philippians, we are described as stars in a dark world, shining as stars. And somebody once said to me, you know, one of the interesting things about stars, they're so far away in the universe, one of the interesting things about stars is that we see the light of a star long after that star has died. That's a remarkable thing. Stars collapse all the time and disintegrate and die. But so far away are they that the light of that star continues to shine for ages before the light of the star 
disappears. And in that sense, the light that we build into our lives, the light that we shed in our lives, will be there long after we are gone. So, when I was asked to speak in this chapter recently, um, I was mightily impressed by it. It's not a chapter I would have chosen. It's not one I would have gone for. But looking at it and thinking about David wanting to do something and having to learn, that's not what God wanted. He wanted something else. And what he wanted, the other thing that he wanted for David was something much bigger and much grander than David could ever have imagined. Thank you for listening so well. I hope that message is an encouragement to you. And next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll take another look at an episode in David's life that might in part help us to think about the general election. Remember the book, Born in a Golden Age. It's outside in the foyer. Thank you.